You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Hey, it's December 30th. You know, are we still in Christmas as the liturgical calendar, I mean, high church, 12 days of Christmas, or are we more towards New Year's, a party tomorrow night, the end of the year, the start of a new year? It's kind of in-between time, right? Well, it's appropriate that we're studying in Luke this kind of in-between story because we've talked about all the birth stories, wonderful Christmas Eve worship this last week. And Luke kind of follows a... uh, a pattern, if you will, for biographies in that day. He gives the birth story, and then he gives this one story from the middle of the person's life that really kind of hones in on who that person is and what that person's character is, and then skips ahead and goes and gives all the adult stories. So what is it about a lost 12-year-old that gives us deep insight into the character of Jesus, and really, why does it matter to us? So uh, I want to tell you some of the sources I'm drawing from for this morning's sermon. Ray Vanderlaan has a great teaching on In the Dust of the Rabbi, fun stories. And uh, Jason Leininger went to the Holy Land and told me that his guide in Jerusalem knew more about the Old Testament, the New Testament, synagogue and temple life in the time of Jesus than Jason ever would. And Jason sat and told me about that for 45 minutes. And I wasn't bored. I was enthralled. There's just so much to know about that era and that time. And the other resource I'm drawing on is my experience as a search and rescue guy. All right? So when I first read this story, I was like, oh, it's a search. Woohoo! I've done, I think I calculated, I've done about 15 full blown search and rescue sims, one in a cave. And I've actually done six real rescues, six real searches. Most of those, surprise, surprise, were for teenage boys. So I am not surprised to read a story about a lost teenage boy. And, you know, maybe another reason that Luke used this story. How many of you have been involved in a lost child search? You were either that lost child or you helped find one or you saw the, I mean, yeah, we could all sit and tell each other stories. And when somebody starts into their lost child story, instantly your gut is gripped. I mean, your brain goes to the one that you knew about, right? We've all been part of searching for those little Darlings. Here's the, okay, what most people do when the rumor starts drifting in, where's so-and-so? Where's so-and-so? Oh, no, we can't find so-and-so. And people's gut gets gripped. And what people want to do is jump up and start running around looking and yelling the person's name. And that really is, is not the most effective thing you can do. What a a trained search team will do, they actually will send out people to do that so that the general public sees, oh, we're doing something. But what they do is they put their best searchers to interviewing and researching. And they, as quickly as they can, gather all the information that they can about the person who is lost. Because the goal is to get into their head and predict what that person thinks and so what that person will do so that you can find that person. I want you to remember that as we're talking this morning. 
Luke is trying to tell us who Jesus is and what Jesus will do and does so that we can adjust our search accordingly. The story is in Luke chapter 2. Starts in verse 41. Here we go. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And kids were allowed to go to the Passover the moment they could eat solid food. Right? So for years, probably Jesus went with them. But when Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. Why, did, why tell this little thing about Jesus being 12 years old? I mean, what's significant about that? Well, in the synagogue training system of that day, a 5- to 12-year-old male would go to the synagogue and sit in the, under the tutelage of a Torah teacher and memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They didn't memorize it the way we memorize it, which would be in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you know, quote it as fast as you can. They memorized it to such extent that if their Torah teacher quoted any six words out of anywhere in that whole Torah, the student could quote the six words before it. I mean, they, they, they got to really know it. When a young man had the whole thing memorized and had kind of passed that section of training, there wasn't a graduation ceremony, there wasn't a certificate given, there was one thing that happened that indicated to the world that this boy was now a man who had the Torah memorized. He had his first Passover. The first Passover meant that that boy was allowed to go and actually sacrifice the lamb. So when people saw Jesus sacrifice the lamb, they knew he has the Torah memorized. He's passed the first section of the synagogue training. Now, wait a minute. Didn't he write the Torah? He's God, right? He's all God. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Didn't he have a head start, a little bit of a cheat, because he, he already had it memorized? Well, if he would have had it memorized before age 12, he would have had his first Passover before age 12. He was all people. I mean, it's all God, all mankind. He had to work just as hard as you or I would to memorize that section of Scripture. Wow. This was his coming of age, his manhood step out. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Some people want to argue about this. Was that on accident or was that on purpose? And, oh, what are the ramifications of either one? Frankly, I could either argue either way. Luke doesn't tell us. I don't think it matters. So we're moving on. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. Easy to do. Have you ever been like at a family reunion or something where there's a bazillion kids all trying to get in 10 different vehicles? It's really easy to leave a kid behind. But when he didn't show up that evening, I'm going to interpret that a little bit. When, he di when a 12-year-old male didn't show up for food, his parents knew something was wrong. Right? You can always find him at mealtime. They started looking for him among their relatives and friends. And they started looking. And they, they asked everybody, and they looked all over the camp, and he was nowhere to be found. Oh, no, we've lost God's son. What does he do to somebody who's lost his son? Joseph, have you seen him? We got, the last place we saw him was in Jerusalem. Oh, no. 
They're, they've already come a day away from Jerusalem. So when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him. A day back. He's already been gone two days. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple. Five days this boy was away from his parents. Well, this young man was away from his parents. I, I just can't imagine how frantic they were by the time they finally saw him. But he was sitting, he was in the temple, sitting among the religious leaders, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So there's something else about the synagogue training system. In order to move into the second level, a, a man not only had to have the Torah memorized, he had to really be able to understand and explain the challenging elements of the Torah. All right? He had to really comprehend and grasp some of the advanced concepts that we struggle with and just have a hard time figuring out. And here he is kind of proving, I can do that. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere. I told you we should have pinched his neck off earlier. You know, uh, Have you ever noticed in your own lost child story, did the parents get mad at the kid when they found him? We are weird people. I mean, fear, elation, uh, hope, all those kind of emotions that we have kind of swirl together and often present themselves as anger in our lives. I mean, his parents are no different. They were angry when they found him. But why did you need to search? Here we go. Here's the point of Luke's story. Here's the point of this whole search, which often you don't really know what somebody's thinking until you actually find them. And then the story makes sense oftentimes. But why did you need to search? He asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? I must be in my father's house. Here I am. I have just become a man. I am taking up my father's business. Well, he's in his father's house. He's hanging out with God in the temple that Solomon built. I mean, this is the, this is the place that David wanted to build to make the Ark of the Covenant not have to sit in a tent. And Solomon built this magnificent thing. It was destroyed. Hezekiah came back, rebuilt the temple. I mean, this is where God dwells. And Jesus, that's where he wants to be. That's where a 12-year-old man goes. He goes to his father's trade and hangs out with his father and does his father's work. So what Jesus was saying in this sentence is, of course, I am doing my father's work, and I am hanging out with him. That is what I do. It's what I'm going to do. You want to know what Jesus thinks and how he acts? This is it. He, he tells us the first words that are recorded in Scripture that Jesus says is his purpose in life. And he follows it out in all the stories later on. He's doing his father's work trade. But they didn't understand what he meant. You searching for Jesus and having a hard time understanding him? I mean, you're trying to work your way through this and it's confusing. It's, it's challenging. Well, you're in good company because Mary and Joseph didn't understand him and they hung around him 24-7. It's okay to have to search a little bit. Jesus. Well, then he returned to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. 
And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Some translations say ponder, right? She chewed on it. She really was trying to figure out this being who was being raised in her home and trying to figure out, how do I adjust my life accordingly to interact with him? Well, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with all the people. He continued. He didn't stop with just having the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. He, later on, he quotes from many uh, elements of the Old Testament. Probably, he went on and got the old, whole Old Testament memorized in his life. Wow. I, frankly, as I was studying this, I kind of felt put to shame. Uh, and I thought about it. Hmm, I haven't memorized anything in months. And the Lord kind of... Gave me a good reminder, swift kick. And so I've been working on memory work again, right? I want to hide his word in my heart so that I can do his will and hang out with him. Because remember, when you're searching for someone, you, you figure them out as much as you possibly can. And you adjust your search accordingly. You adjust your behavior in order to find them. Are you searching for Jesus? Bob used the word earlier, disciple. We talk about deeper discipleship because that's what Jesus told us. If you want to find me, you need to be my disciple. And here's what he meant in that whole synagogue training system. When a rabbi took on a disciple, there was kind of a, a little covenant language that they used with one another. So back to that system. Uh, a boy would go through the first system, memorize the Torah, go through the second system. He was only allowed to move on if he was an excellent Torah student. And, he, and then he would memorize in the second phase of the training the whole Bible. And really, he, was only, he would only take the risk to try to become a disciple. A Talmud is the word they use that we translate disciple. He would only take the risk to become a Talmud if he knew that he was the top of the top. He knew the scripture. He could answer the hard questions. And, and then at about age 15 or 16, he would leave the Torah school. He would go try to find a rabbi. And he would try to find a rabbi who he thought he had a good chance of becoming like that person. So he would try to find one who kind of matched his character in life. And then he would go hang out where that rabbi was teaching. And he would hang out for five, six months, I mean months. And the rabbi would see him back there, would have kind of caught word that this boy was, well, this young man, was seeking to be a disciple. And the rabbi would have him wait a while. And then one day, when that Man was there. I wouldn't know when this was coming. The rabbi would say, son. And, and that starts the contractual language, right? And the, and the young man would come up to him and say, rabbi, may I be your disciple? And here's what he meant. It wasn't, hey, may I join your college? My parents will pay tuition. It wasn't, will you teach me some, some uh, words? Can I get your workbook and fill out the lines and you know, be your student like a college professor kind of thing? It wasn't like that. What he was really saying was, rabbi, you are a revered man of God. Everybody knows that you are close to God and you've got this life really figured out. Do you think that I could be like you? And the rabbi would test him. Well, tell you what, why don't you quote Leviticus for me? The young man would quote Leviticus. 
I mean, this isn't the exact test, but it would be something along these lines. And, and they, they would spend a lot of time together. And then the rabbi would start into a little harder questions along the lines of, the book of Numbers is quoted seven times in the book of Micah. What are those quotes? And why did Micah use those quotes? Could you answer something like that? I couldn't answer something like that. I mean, the rabbis would really test them. And if, if they didn't pass the rabbi's test, the rabbi would say something like, you know what, you are a wonderful young man. Why don't you go back and learn your father's trade? And at any time along in this whole training system, that's what would happen to a young man who was not the best of the best of the best. If the rabbi said, come follow me, then what he meant was, yes, for the next 15 years of your life, you may follow me around and learn to live like I live. And the saying in that area was, if you are a Talmud, if you are a disciple following a rabbi, you want to live in the dust of the rabbi, meaning you stay so close to him, you follow them so closely that the dust they kick up on their feet gets all over your clothes. Ray Vanderlaan said, if you go to New York, I have not done this, I've not seen it, I've not witnessed it, but he said, if you go and you find a rabbi today who has disciples following him, they follow him everywhere. And it looks like a gaggle of ducks, right, going around. That's what it means to be a disciple is to stay so close that you hear them breathe. You don't want to miss any utterance that comes out of that person's mouth. And that's what Jesus, you know what? He kind of turned that whole system up on its head. He had a way of doing that. He didn't wait for people to come to him. He went to regular Joe Blows who were working in their father's trade and said, hey, you, I think that you can be like me. You know the words that I'm talking about. Come follow me. He said those words to the disciples, right? And he says those words to us. You don't have to be above average to be like me. You can do it. You can hang out with God and do his will just like I do. Wow. Do you want that? Do you want that so bad you can taste it? I mean, that, that's what we're called to. We need that reminder so often that that is the life we are called to live. I, Bob referenced it earlier. So we've got uh, the living room and the Bible made simple. Folks, I mean, this is what we've got. This is our way to live in the dust of our rabbi. We've got this, that we, we get to know as much as possible this word. We've got his Holy Spirit, and we've got each other. And that's what we, we want, that deeper discipleship in our lives, in this church. We seek it. We pursue it. Why? Well, really? I mean, the ultimate reason is it's not about you. It's not about any of us in this room. It is about Christ's mission on this earth. We get the privilege of being a part of his solutions to, in this crazy life. Okay, but Psalm 103 says, Yeah, but he's mindful of our frame. He knows we're only made of dust. So he gives us some motivation. I think hardly any of us are able on our own just to find the motivation to serve Christ. But I was having a conversation with Dirk Rowe. He works at uh, Victory Mission. 
It, we were just having a side conversation, and, and something Dirk said just struck me. I enjoy evangelism not because I enjoy people being saved, but because while I am telling people about Jesus, I feel close to God. What I deeply crave is feeling close to God. We were created so that that is a wonderful feeling like no other. Deep satisfaction, deep contentment, and God gives us that. Something about hanging out with him is just wonderful. But we easily wallow in the mundane of seeking comfort and safety instead of living in that abundant, thriving, hanging out with God and doing his will. So I'm going to tell you my story, a little piece of my story. So I really thought that I kind of understood the concepts that we're talking about here, right? And uh, left a ministry after leading. I became a, a, a trainer of trainers, really talking about what we're talking about here. And I got to go work. I, I don't, the only way I can explain this is God put me there in an environment that was almost custom designed to be exactly the opposite of where I would want to work. I need quiet in order to do my best work. And for many, many, couple of years in that place, I, my desk was in the middle of a shop where people were working on trucks, on salvage trucks, fixing them. And that is not a quiet place. I wore huge earphones to try to do my work. Also, I kind of have a sensitive nose. I can find, like if something's stinking in our house, my wife comes and gets me and has me find it, right? And did I say that I worked in a truck, a, a, a trash truck shop? My desk was in the middle of a shop. One time, one of the wonderful mechanics dumped his truck in the shop, and that sludge came sliding under my desk. I barely lifted my feet in time. Okay? Uh, also, the wonderful mechanics loved to put pornography up on the walls. And the air was filled with pornographic conversations and cussing and things, you know, that I just did not want to have in my life. And I would scream to God, God, why? Why would you call anybody to a place like this? And my wife kept telling me, David, it's a great mission field. Yeah, whatever. I mean, the first, the first couple years there, all I wanted to do on a daily basis was escape. I did not want to be on mission for God in a salvage truck shop. However, he started working on me, and I, I, I did. I mean, even in those first two years, I would, I, I knew what, what I we're talking about. I knew it. I believed it. It was just really hard to do in that environment. But when I did it, when I went to that place on mission for Jesus and looking at it that way and was trying to abide with the Lord, Lord, Will you prove that this is true? Father, I've got this incredibly challenging accounting problem that I'm trying to do in the middle of these hard circumstances, and it's just, okay, Lord, I want to abide with you. Will you please solve this problem? And when I would abide with the Lord and look at it 
as if I was on mission for the Lord, that place was a wonderful place to work. And it, boy, there for a while, it was a moment-by-moment -moment choice. And towards the end of my time there, thank you, Lord, most of the time, I was on mission for the Lord and abiding with him. And it was a wonderful place to work. And I thought, okay, I can do this for the rest of my life. This is doable. Lord, if this is where you want me to do your will, it's doable. Whew, maybe I just needed to get to that point so I could get out of there. So maybe your point, your lesson from this sermon is get there as quick as you can if you want to escape your circumstances because sometimes he won't let you leave until you learn that. Because he loves you enough to teach you to hang out with him regardless of the circumstances. It is a wonderful life. Are you struggling because your portfolio lost 20% this last week? Abide with Jesus and join him in his will, in his work, working for God the Father. The portfolio loses its value. It's, it's grip. You want satisfaction in your life? I'm in a deep satisfaction regardless of the circumstances. Yeah, abide with Jesus and join him in doing the work of the Father. You want joy in your life right now? I, he says it's possible. This peace that passes understanding. And we've read all sorts of biographies, people who are in concentration camps getting this amazing peace that passes understanding because they abide with Jesus and join him in his work right where they were. You want hope that the best years are yet to come, that life can be satisfying from here forward all the way to the end, and that it, joy is in store? Join Jesus. Hang out with him and join him in his work. I was introduced to the Wesley Covenant prayer at this church. I don't know, four or five years ago was the first time I heard it. The first time we spoke through it, I was in the middle of working at that place, and I skipped several of these phrases. Towards the end of working at that place, I was able to say these phrases, uh, all of them. Sometimes wincing, I have to admit, I still sometimes wince, and I still sometimes pray this prayer uh, saying, well, Lord, and you're going to have to help me with that one in particular. But if you will, stand with me. We're going to speak through the Wesley Covenant prayer together. I don't know where you are hanging out with Jesus. You may need to have conversations with him before you can say all of this. But uh, here we go. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praise for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your hope and service. And now, O oh glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours. So be it. In the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen.